Good morning. Good morning. It's good to be back with you this morning, opening Scripture Day. We are finishing up our series on Abraham this morning. Next week we start the Advent season, as David said, but before we did that, we wanted to wrap up the series that we started back in September. And we're looking today at Genesis 22. The Old Testament scholar Bruce Waltke has called this, quote, one of the most theologically difficult texts of the Old Testament. Now, if you've been here, you realize that we've been looking at the central figure of Abraham, but even more central to Abraham's story is God, because we're watching, really, how God engages Abraham as Abraham lives out his life, sometimes faithfully, sometimes not so faithfully, and we've seen God be just incredibly consistent, just uh, continue to engage Abraham according to the promises that he's given him, and yet we come to today's passage, and suddenly God seems very out of character. Not at all what you would expect from a gracious, faithful, promising God. You don't expect him to say to his friend Abraham, I want you to sacrifice your son. And so when you read this passage, it's jarring. It's supposed to be jarring. Words again from Walke, quote, Abraham is asked to behave in a way that is illogical, absurd, and to say the least, non-conventional from the human perspective, unquote. And the question then, before we can even dive into the passage, is what do we do with a passage like this? It's in the scripture. I was talking with a friend about a month ago. She and I get together every now and then to talk theology, and she was sharing about how she's bragged about her God in the past. How she's told her friends, my God is different. He's different from all the other gods. And then fairly recently, she was reading a couple passages in the scripture, several ones similar to this, where God doesn't seem all that different after all. That he seems kind of primitive, barbaric uncultured, unenlightened. And my friend read a couple of these passages and she thought, oh God, you're not any different. You're just like all the other gods. You can hear her being disappointed. She's embarrassed, upset. She put into words the kinds of things that I feel, the kinds of things that other people feel when we read a passage like Genesis 22. Now, if you read far enough into the passage, you realize, actually, no, God is not like all the other gods, but you cannot get around the fact that he's told a father to sacrifice his son. And that makes you wrestle. It's not something that simply we as modern people wrestle with, like you know, we're so much more enlightened than other people. Pre-modern people wrestle with this as well. The Jewish rabbis wrestled with this. And if you think about it, that is exactly what you would expect to find if this really was from God. If it really is God speaking, then as you read through the scripture, you would expect to find things in the Bible that are troubling. Things in the Bible that just rub you the wrong way. And it wouldn't just be you. You would expect everybody at some point, what we find troubling is going to change based on who we each are and what background we come out of. But you would expect everybody to be uncomfortable at some point. Because if God is real, then you would expect him to not agree with everything that you think and not to agree with everything that you value. And you would expect him to say things that you're going to struggle with because your perspective on life and his perspective on life are not going to line up at times. They're going to be at odds with each other. I mean, isn't that true of your close relationships? Isn't it true that no two people ever see things exactly the same way? Don't you expect your friends, your roommates, your spouse, to not always agree with you? If you have children, you had better expect them not to agree with you. You expect people to see the world differently. Well, what happens then if you never talk about those differences? What happens if you know that they're there, if you know that they have to be there, but you never let them out into the open? 
Well, that means then that you're actually holding yourself back from that other person. You know that you don't fully agree with them, but you don't let them know that if you're not willing to say so. And so the two of you are not as close as this other person thinks you are because you're holding on to these differences. And by doing that, you're putting distance in the relationship. You're keeping yourself from that other person. And God doesn't want that for you and him. He wants more than that. And so he regularly talks about things in Scripture that you're going to find troubling, jarring, that are going to make you uncomfortable. Because they're things that don't fit easily into the way that you think about the world. They're values that you don't necessarily have. And that's exactly what you would expect to find if the Bible really is the Word of God, if it's really a person speaking to you. You would find, you would expect to find that as he shares his perspective on this world, that you're not always going to agree with him. If God never disagrees with you, you're not actually engaging a real person. If you decide, you know what, I, I don't like this passage, so I'm just going to ignore it. Or there's other passages, I don't like what those say, I'm just going to ignore those. I'm going to continue to have a relationship with God, I'm just going to cut those pieces out. If you do that, you don't have a real God that you're relating to. Instead, what do you have? You have a God that you've made in your own image, according to your own likeness. A God that conforms to how you think and to what you value. Only a real God will really disagree with you one of the ways that you know that you feel not made up. In other words, the way that my friend that I told you about is, is responding is normal. If you're not regularly finding things in Scripture that upset you, that challenge you, that challenge the way that you put the world together and the way that you think about the world, then you're not really engaging with the real God. You're engaging with one that you've made up. Now, what do you do with it, though? How do you actually interact with this passage if you're not going to ignore it? Maybe two thoughts. First, like I said earlier, don't be surprised by it. Expect passages like this. Look for them. If you're not finding them, then you're not thinking actually about what you're reading. You should expect God to say things that regularly don't fit into the way that you see the world. Don't be surprised if you expect them. Secondly, though, remember why it's here. It's because God wants to say something to you that he thinks is necessary for your faith. He put it in the scripture in the first place. It didn't just sort of appear there. More than that, he's made sure that it is still there thousands of years later. What's that tell you? It tells you he's not embarrassed by it. If God's embarrassed by this, guess what? It just disappears into the sands of time like so many other things that have been written. The fact that it's not, and the fact that it continues to rankle even the, the culture that he put it into, tells you that he wants it there. He's not embarrassed by it. There's things in there for you to see. And so don't spiritualize it when you come to these passages. Don't try to explain them away. Don't feel like you need to justify God or defend him. Instead, ask the question, what is this here? And, and what is critical for me to understand? Now, if you ask that question, you're going to find a lot of things in Genesis 22 that you really need to know. We only have time for three this morning. So here's the three that we're going to look at. Number one, you can't come to God without a sacrifice. Number two, what you offer to God shows what you actually believe about Him. And third, it's going to be a little bit of a conundrum, but no sacrifice that you bring is ever going to be enough. So first, you can't come without a sacrifice. Two, what you offer to God shows what you believe inside about Him. And third, no sacrifice that you bring will ever be enough. First, 
can't come to God without a sacrifice. Back to verse 2. God says to Abraham, Take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah, and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. And if you're anything like me, you hear that, you read that, and you recoil from it. What's happening in that moment when we shrink back from a passage like this? And I'm including me in that week. What's happening when we recoil, when we say, that's barbaric? Or God's just messing with Abraham's head? Or doesn't he understand the kind of trauma issues that this is going to give Isaac? What's happening when we have those kind of thoughts? What's happening is that we are coming to this passage with certain understandings of what goodness is, and certain understandings of what justice is, and that we are looking at God through the lens of our goodness and the lens of our justice, and we find him lacking. He comes up short. We don't think that he measures up to our assessment of someone who is good, and so we judge him. And we're saying, you know what, God? I, I wouldn't do it this way if I was in your position. I would choose to do it differently if I had those exact same circumstances. And we think that our choice is better than God's choice. We judge him by our own sense of goodness. It's part of what's going on when we record. We've imposed our standard of goodness onto the passage. Now let me suggest that we should recoil. But we should recoil for a different reason. And the reason is not, God, you're not good enough. The reason is that our standard of goodness is not good enough. That we are not good enough. Think about it this way. Take any standard of goodness that you want. If you want to think about the Ten Commandments, or if you don't want to think about Ten Commandments, think about a different set of standards. Or just if you don't want to go external, go internal. Think about the kinds of things that come out of your mouth, the things where you say, this is what people should do, this is what people should not do. Pick any standard that you want, and then ask this question. According to that standard, have you been perfectly good? Okay, let's, let's run that through with the Ten Commandments. Have you kept every one of the Ten Commandments at all times? including the one about not coveting, about not wanting what someone else has. Or find a societal set of standards and say, ask yourself, have you perfectly kept that set of standards? All you have to do is think about that set of standards for the roadway traffic and, and, and think about when was the last time you cut somebody off. Have you perfectly kept that? Or let's go internally. Have you held yourself perfectly to what you expect from other people? Have you, at all times, held yourself to the same standard that you want everybody else to be held to? And if you ask me those questions, I have to admit, no, I haven't. And it doesn't matter whether I'm comparing myself to some external standard or I'm looking internally, I haven't measured up. It's especially true if I'm looking at my own internal standards. If you judge me according to what I say other people should do, I regularly make exceptions for myself. And I have lots of justification for why it's okay for me to have an exception. It's not okay for you to have that exception. That's bad. Here's the really bad part. I tend to be okay with that. I tend to be okay with my hypocrisy. There's reasons for why I get an exception and you don't. And that's not what? That's not good. That's not real good. Real goodness cannot tolerate a lack of goodness. It doesn't matter whether it's external or internal. For goodness to be good, goodness has to hate evil. 
pure goodness hates evil, and it works to eliminate it. See, if goodness doesn't hate evil, if it just tolerates it, if it just ignores it, if it just says, oh, that's okay, it's not good, but, but you know, it, it's good enough, it's okay, then what does goodness just do? Goodness just lowered its standard, and it said something not good is good. Goodness just lost being good in that moment. So when real goodness, not yours and my kind, but real goodness comes into contact with anything not good, it's aggressive. And it moves toward that not goodness to eliminate it. That means you cannot just waltz into God's presence and expect everything to be okay. You're bringing not goodness into the presence of pure goodness, and that's dangerous for you. And there's a strength to real goodness that we just don't get. We don't get it because we tolerate not goodness in ourselves. And because we don't get it, we have a bad conception of goodness, and therefore we struggle to understand this passage. What is this passage really trying to say? God tells Abraham, verse 2, offer your son as a burnt offering. Offer him as a substitute. As a substitute for Abraham. As a substitute for the wrongs that Abraham has done. Abraham is not perfectly good. We've seen a number of his sins throughout our time together. And therefore, Abraham has forfeited his right to be in God's presence. And God can't simply overlook that. If he did, then God is going to leave a hole in the universe somewhere that someone else is going to have to fill in. Let me give you this illustration. Four years ago, in June of 2015, in Colorado, in a place called Greenwood Village, there was a Walmart shoplifter who armed himself and then barricaded himself inside a family home. He held the police off for 19 hours. And the, you can find a number of reputable sources. This comes out of NPR. In order to get the man out, quote, law enforcement blew up walls with explosives, fired tear gas, and drove a military-style armored vehicle through the property's doors. Here's a picture of what they left behind. Not too surprisingly, the home was in such bad shape that the city later condemned it, which meant that the owner either had to rehab it back to code or just raise it and start all over again, chose to raise it and start all over again. And in order to help the man, the city compensated him the grand sum of $5,000. And then they said they were not responsible for anything more than that. Now, Understand the man's a little upset, and so he sues in court. The case actually had to work its way through the court system until at the end of this past October, four years later, it made it to federal appeals court, where federal appeals court ruled that the homeowner, quote, isn't, that is, is not, isn't entitled to be compensated because the police were acting to preserve the safety of the public. So what are they saying? They're saying, yes, the police did something that impacted this man negatively, and the man has to pay for it. The city can ignore it. The city can say, it's okay. Not that big a deal. Now, how's that sit with you? Does that feel like that's okay? Would you like that to be your home and have the city say, here's $5,000, it's okay? Does that strike you as good? Does that strike you as good for them not to compensate the man according to what the property was worth? Or, or does it feel like something is lacking here? Like something is not good? This is where you understand that goodness is tied to justice. Whenever something not good happens in the world, there is a price that has to be paid 
in order to bring it back up to the way that it was before. And so God can't simply look at Abraham and say, you know what, I like you. And, and you're kind of my friend. And you know what, you've done some bad things, it's okay. If God ignores that, he's no longer perfectly good. But he's also created something in the universe now that's not perfectly good. He's allowed something to be in the universe that should not be the way that it is. Somewhere, someone is going to have to pay for what Abraham has done for this, this unjust thing. And if they don't, then this un injustice will be carried into eternity. Now, I think we've already established you and I are not all that good. But if we can see that what happens in Colorado is unjust and should not be that way and should be paid, this man should be compensated and restored back to what he had, don't you see that that's the same way that God is thinking for the universe? That in order to restore it back to what it was, that someone, somewhere, has to pay to set things right. And if it's not the person who did the wrong initially, then there has to be a substitute. There has to be something somewhere that is sacrificed to make things right. The sacrifice that removes the evil so that only good is left. The sacrifice that restores the world back to the way that it should be. So that the world is what? So that the world is good. Whenever something not good happens, there is a price that has to be paid. In Colorado, someone has to pay. Either the shoplifter has to pay, or the police have to pay, or Greenwood Village has to pay, or the man has to pay. Someone somewhere has to pay. If it's not the offender, then there has to be a substitute. And so the real question that we should recoil from in this passage is not, does there need to be a sacrifice? The real question that we should recoil from is, how big does the sacrifice have to be? How big does the sacrifice have to be in order to remove the ungoodness that you and I bring into this world? It's pure mercy that a truly good God would accept the substitute but how much is enough? It's a question that a later prophet Micah wrestles with. He asks that question in chapter 6, verses 6 and 7 of his book. With what shall I come before the Lord and bow myself before God on high? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, with ten thousands of rivers of oil? Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression? the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul. How much is enough? Something has to be given. That's not in question. Something has to be sacrificed to make up for the times that have not been good. God can't just say, oh, it doesn't matter. But when you sin against an infinite being, when infinite goodness is about to destroy your not goodness, how much is enough to handle that? The reality is that there is nothing that God cannot ask for from you in order to reset the scales. How many year old calves, though, would be enough? Thousands of friends, would that be enough? Rivers of olive oil, tens of thousands of rivers of olive oil. You hear them ramping up. It's to the top, my firstborn. The fruit of my body for the sin of my soul. When you think in terms of absolute goodness and justice, there is not too high a cost. 
my dad, she goes on to tell you that he, that's not enough. You can't keep even that one work. But notice back in Genesis 22, Abraham does not quibble about the price. Abraham's not afraid to bargain with God back in chapter 18 over what it would cost what it, in order to save Sodom and Gomorrah. He's absolutely silent on this point. He knows who he's talking to. And he knows what it takes to talk with him. He knows that you can't do so without a substitute. Even when Isaac is spared, Abraham knows that there still needs to be a sacrifice. You can't just walk down off the mountain now with some kind of you know, philosophical, theological lesson. There still has to be something done here. So when God tells him, verse 12, do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him, and he sees the ram in the thicket, he immediately grabs the ram and sacrifices the ram. Abraham understands something that you and I have got to know deep, deep down inside of us. We cannot approach this God without a sacrifice. And because of how great he is, and because of what you've done against him, there is nothing too big that you have, nothing too important that he can not ask you to come to That's one. You cannot come to God without a sacrifice. Second, what you offer shows actually what you believe about him. Genesis 22 opens by telling in verse 1 that God is testing Abraham. What's the nature of the test? It's to understand, verse 12, whether or not Abraham fears God. Now, in this context, fear does not mean afraid of God or scared of God. It means that he holds God in, in high respect, that he's in awe of God. That he values God above all other things. And the question is, does Abraham fear God? Does he value him above all other things? It turns out he does. How do you know that? Also in verse 12, it's because he's not withheld from God what is most precious. He's not without his son, his only son, Isaac. And you see what Abraham values, that invisible value that you can't really see in someone else. You see what he values by his actions. And what he values most is God over what God has given to him. God is testing the quality of Abraham's faith. We learned back in chapter 15 that Abraham has faith that when God said he was going to give him countless descendants, Abraham believed, and that was counted to him as righteousness. But there's an open question there, which is, how strong is that faith? We get to chapter 16, and Abraham is wondering where this child is, and so he decides to help God out. He sleeps with Hagar. doesn't look very strong there. We get to chapter 20. He's worried he might die before he has a child, and so he lies to King Abimelech about who his wife is. Well, she's my sister, he says. During this time, God's reiterated his promise. He's deepened it. Chapter 17, we learned this promise is going to come through Sarah. It's going to be a son named Isaac. Chapter 21, verse 12, God says it's going to be through Isaac that your offspring is named. These are all wonderful promises of God. But how much does Abraham believe them? How much does he trust the God behind the promises? How important to him is God? And you know what? You don't know. You don't know until what? Until Abraham has to make a choice. A choice between hanging on to what God has given him or hanging on to God himself. A choice between having what God has given or having God's friendship. If he can't hold on to both at the same time, if he has to let one go, which one of that those is it going to be? 
It's a test. Test the state. And it's the kind of test that God gives to all of his people. He does it later with the Israelites. They're in the wilderness, Deuteronomy 8, verse 2. And God says, I tested you to know what was in your heart, whether or not you would keep my commands. The Spirit leads Jesus out into the wilderness to be tempted in Matthew chapter 4, verse 1. And, and this is not simply the way that God has dealt in the past with his people, he's tested them. But he'll test you also. If you're one of God's children, you will face probably many times throughout your life choices where you have to answer the question, how important is God to me? Is he more important than all other things? Or is there someone? Is there something in front of him in life? Do I have another God that I've set up before him? Now why does God do that? Why does he test you? Is it to hurt you, or, or to be mean to you, or to tempt you to sin? No. It's because you have to have something of ultimate value in your life. Something that you will hold on to until the end. You'll let everything else go. You can't help it. Something will come in front of everything else. And the only way that you can have a full life is if that something that comes first in line is God. You can only have a full life if everything else is ordered under Him. Or to put it in the terms that we've been studying in the book of Genesis, you can only have the blessing of God truly if you're holding more tightly on to him than you are holding on to what he gives you. If his blessing means more to you than he does, if his blessing has replaced him, then what? It's going to obscure his beauty. You won't really be able to see who he is. But it's also going to ruin your life. Take your career, for instance. If you want the things that your career offers you, honor, recognition, lifestyle, if you want those things more than you want the God who gave you your gifts and talents so that you can have the career that you have, then you're going to make choices always for what? For your career. And you're always going to move toward your career because you want those other things that it's offering you. And you'll make those choices long enough over a long enough period of time that you'll eventually become a workaholic. It will ruin everything else in your life. You'll never in if you want to have time for family, you want to have time for friends, work will always be the thing you choose over family and friends. You're also not enjoying the things that you get because those things in the past, and what you'll do is you'll strive for that next one in line. Hold career first in line, and it will ruin everything else in your life. Or, if you, let's take the example of you wanting the you want the closeness of relationships, but family and friends more than you value God. If that's the case, then what your family and friends offer you will never be enough. You'll end up suffocating the people around you because you want more and more and more and more from them. You'll be unhappy if they don't reciprocate, if they don't want you at least as much as you want them. You'll end up depressed, bitter. You'll actually push the people away from you that you wanted to have around you so badly. If you hold anything more important to you, more valuable to you than your relationship with God, you'll end up ruining everything else as well. Get the order right, and you get your life too. Get the order wrong, and you'll ruin even that thing that you're trying so hard to hang on to. That's why God tests his people. It's to keep them from ruining their lives. It's to give them a life that's actually worth living. Now Abraham passes this test. Because he believes that through this test, God is still good, even when God is asking the impossible from Abraham. And that's what you're going to have to believe, too, if you're also going to pass the test. 
we look again at verse 5. Here's where Abraham signals his faith. He tells the two men who came with he and Isaac, Stay here with the donkey. I and the boy will go over there and worship and come again to you. I and the boy will go and come again to you. Not I and the boy will go and I will come back. But I and the boy will go and come back to you. What is he saying there? He's saying that somehow he knows God's going to bring Isaac back. He doesn't know how. Knowing that is not making this any easier. Please don't pretend that this is easy for him. Just because he understands what the future is going to do. There are people who say that. It's ridiculous. What Abraham knows is that what happens on the mountain is not the end. That there is a future beyond what happens there. And he knows that God has promised him countless descendants through Isaac and ultimately the Messiah to come through them. So Abraham enters into this test believing that God is good, believing that God is going to come through on his promise. That's why Hebrews 11, 19 says that Abraham considered that God was able even to raise Isaac from the dead. It's a new level of faith for him. Earlier, he had to believe that God was miraculously going to give a, an older couple who could not have children a son who's going to miraculously produce life. Now he has to believe that God can reproduce that life. And so Abraham comes believing God's promises. Abraham comes believing that God is going to do whatever it takes in order for Abraham to be with God for all eternity with no regrets because of this Messiah who's coming from Isaac. Abraham believes this, and so he acts on what he believes. And he acts on what he believes because that's what faith does. See, faith does not stay stuck, locked inside of you. Faith expresses itself. It comes out of you. And it comes out of you in certain kinds of actions. That's what the author James says in chapter 2 when he says, What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Works are how James says actions. What good is it if someone says he has faith but does not have actions? In other words, it's pointless. James goes on in verse 18 to say, Someone will say, You have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works, which can't do it. Show me your faith apart from your actions that it's not possible. It has to come out in actions. And I will show you my faith by my works, by my actions. You will see what I really believe, what is of ultimate value to me because of the kinds of things that I do. And then James talks about this story of Abraham offering up Isaac to illustrate that what comes out of a person shows you what their faith is actually in. You see what Abraham most trusted by what he did. See real faith, confidence that God is good. And he expresses that confidence in his actions. That's what he's saying for you. Watch what comes out of your life when you are tested. And you'll see what's most important to you. You'll see what your faith actually is, and you'll see whether or not you believe that God is good. Now, you don't have a promise that you're going to have a child from whom the Messiah will come. But you have a lot of other promises. And so ask yourself, are these the kinds of things that I cling to when I'm tested? Do I believe, Deuteronomy 31, verse 6 to 8, that God will never leave me or forsake me, not even when he tests me? 1 Corinthians 10, 13, do I believe that he will never give me more in, my, in these tests than I can handle, but that in each kind of testing he will provide a way out for me? Or Romans 8, 18, that what God offers cannot be compared to the coming glory. That one moment in eternity will wipe out an entire lifetime of suffering, a lifetime of endurance. Do I believe that? 
what you hold on to when you test it shows what you do. Your faith expresses itself in those moments. So one, you can't come to God without a sacrifice. Two, what you offer to God shows what you believe about Him, whether or not you actually think He's good. And then here's the conundrum in this passage. No sacrifice that you bring will ever be enough. I'm going to ask a morbid question because it helps us see very clearly what we have to see in this passage. Why doesn't God let Abraham go through it? Abraham has done the hard work of getting his mind and heart ready. Rose up early the next day. He's journeyed the entire time. Has not turned his back on what God's called him to do. He's built an altar. He's arranged the wood. He's bound his son. He's apparently holding the knife. He's ready to strike. He believes that God can raise the dead if he has to. Why not at that point just let him go through with it and then raise Isaac from the dead? It would be miraculous, right? It would be very faith-filled. Why doesn't God do that? It's because Isaac isn't a good enough son. And don't get me wrong, Isaac's amazing. Think about Isaac here. He's pretty sad. He's figured out already that they don't have a lamb for the sacrifice. He's pretty strong. He's carried the wood for the sacrifice on up this mountain. His father's really old at this point in time. You realize that Isaac, pretty sad and pretty strong, could get away if he wanted to. And he doesn't. He's completely on board with everything that his father is doing. It's an amazing song. Someone's really good. But he's not good enough. He has his own not goodness that won't let him come near to God. His own not goodness that also needs a sacrifice. See, he's not a good enough son to substitute for Abraham, and so God doesn't let him. God provides this temporary solution, a ram. But there's a problem here as well. A problem that I never saw until someone pointed this out to me. It's another person that I meet with regularly to talk about scripture and life together. This person asked me one time, why does God provide a ram at the end of the chapter? When Abraham said earlier that God would provide a lamb. Never saw that. It's a great question. Did you notice that? Abraham and Isaac are talking on the way up the mountain, and Isaac asks, verse 7, Behold, the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for a burnt offering? Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. But then he provides a ram. Not a lamb. Where's the lamb? Where's the sacrifice that will allow Abraham and his son to be in the presence of God, in the presence of perfect goodness, and not be burned up? Where is the lamb? The end of the chapter, that question is still in play. Where is the lamb that God will give? Where is the lamb of God? And that's a question that hangs out there for 2,100 years. Until John the Baptist sees Jesus, and he says, Behold, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world. Jesus, the Lamb of God, who would willingly agree to this plan of his Father to sacrifice himself as a substitute to save his people. Jesus, the Son who was good enough. It's not a son being abused by his Father. He's a Son who is fully God, who agreed with God that God should bear the wrath of God, and so not simply save his people from their sins, but save his people from the wrath of God, from God himself. That's when you realize the Bible never says that God is a God of anger. 
says God's a God of love. God of mercy. A God who does not want his people to pay for their not goodness. A God who would rather pay for them himself. But if he's going to pay for them himself, it's going to be really personal. Why did God command Abraham to sacrifice his son? Why put him through all of this? Why take this story right to the edge of morality? Right to the edge of what's unthinkable? To show you what God himself has been thinking for all eternity. To show you what God's been planning. To help you understand how much it would cost for him to rescue you, to be friends with him. That even though Jesus would rise from the dead, that the cost of that rescue from his goodness would be a cost that you and I can barely stand to consider. That salvation would involve a father and son alone. Father and son who were eternally father and son, who had always been father and son, who had never not been together, who would experience this moment where one is forsaken by the other. It's a father and son who had to leave all else behind, take a three-day journey to do what only they could do. A son who had been promised for all for, for centuries, who people got tired of waiting for, who then came to this earth miraculously. A son who is the only son of his father, deeply loved. A son who climbed his own hill, carrying his own wood, who laid himself on his own altar while his father picked up the knife and didn't put it down. The pain of God's wrath burned hotter than any sacrifice ever did. Until all that is evil in you and me is judged. All people, all destroyed. Nothing left. How can you look at that God and want anything more than Him? He did all that for you. Not because He was forced into it, but because He wanted to. He wanted you. Yes. You really did cost that much. And yes, I really did want you that badly. And if you take him at his word, if that was enough to rescue you from his wrath, then you're twice his. Once because he created you. Twice because he bought you. Paid for you. Which means there is nothing that he cannot rightly demand of you. Nothing that should ever get in between you and you. Nothing that can be more important to you than he is. And nothing then in your world that you don't willingly gladly bring to him with open hands saying, I don't want anything between you and me. I want you. And I want you a little bit as badly as you want me. And I want to be in the presence of goodness for all of you. We're about to enter into the Lord's Supper. I've already seen the Lord's Supper. You see a picture of all these words. It's another way of understanding this at a deeper level. So let me invite you to take a few moments now. Pastor Lou's going to come. But take a few moments. Take your heart ready. Take your heart ready by talking to this God. And tell him you don't want anything else to be anything.
Thank you.